Imagine that you were switched at birth. Right after you were born, somebody snuck into the hospital and stole you away, took you home and raised you, taught you how to talk, how to ride a bike, taught you when you went to school. In other words, everything you learned over the first few years of your lives were taught by someone who wasn't your real parent. It was someone who stole you. You didn't know this. You never met your real father or mother. As you got a little older, the people who stole you attended all your games and went to your recitals. But something started to change. They got harsh and demanding and critical. Every time you did something, they were comparing you to someone else. And it felt like you were never enough. Everything you did just seemed to fall short. It felt like you couldn't get the approval of these people that had once been so kind and affirming. And they called you things like stupid and weak and ugly. And you resisted this language. But the more you did, the worse things got. Every now and then you'd throw a tantrum. You'd go to your room and you would tear things up and you'd talk to your friends who you learned were also stolen at birth. And every time you talked to them, you felt stronger. So you'd go see your parents and you would tell them that they were being unfair and unjust and they'd better change things in this house but at the end of the day, it was still their house. These were still their rules, and you had nowhere to go. Then one day, you received a letter from someone you'd never met. They seemed to know a lot about you. Without using your first name or any instances about you, they said things that resonated with you, but they totally denied everything these people raising you had said. They had said that you were nobody and you would always be a nobody until you could prove that you were somebody. But this person writing you said that you were chosen and you were royal and you were good in your heart and you didn't know who to believe and the people raising you had said you will never have enough and so you better save as much as you can and get rich and the one writing you said you'll probably never be rich but you'll always have enough the the ones who raised you uh, said that all of your trouble was your own fault it was the result of somebody's wrath and it just proved how stupid and weak that you were. But the one who was writing you said that it was the sign you were loved. It was as if a father was disciplining his own sons or daughters. Well, you're confused because now it seems like you have two parents, one that raised you and another one who wrote you. And you're wondering, 
If this one who wrote me really cares, what took him so long? Where was he 10 years ago when I was being just crushed by these people that raised me? And then he says that you have an older brother. Turns out he was stolen too by the same people that raised you. And they were cruel and harsh and demanding to him, but he liked them, loved them. He just didn't believe him. The one writing you says that this older brother never gave himself to them because he knew what was in them. In other words, he got out. He found a way to live with these parents without Believing these parents. Well, you want this for yourself, don't you? And it might be a long journey, you think. But that journey begins with a question. Who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe the one who raised you? The people who stole you and taught you how to think Or are you going to believe the one who had you, who birthed you, and who wrote you, even though you've never met him? The first casualty for people in exile, people scattered that cannot meet and reinforce their traditions and their shared memory is the slow erosion of your identity. Slowly, imperceptibly, we come to shift our identity off of God and onto some other category that was created by the people around us. Those categories generally are formed in language. By using language to define us, we come to think of ourselves according to the categories assigned by the people who raised us. That is the culture. And then one day, we get a letter. And the letter says that you are chosen and holy and blameless. It says you may never be rich, but you will always have enough. It says when bad things happen, it's the sign that you are loved and disciplined by a father who cares even though you've never met him. And you have a choice. Which voice am I going to hear? My angst uh, for the last few months has been that the people of God are losing their voice. We are losing our language. Even when our arguments are right, the premises of those arguments 
are wrong. You would think that our arguments as the church of Christ would be more theological or at least larger, other than what everyone else is saying, but I don't hear it. And so my grief this morning is on two levels. First, like so many of you, I grieve that in the last few weeks, all of the good that we've seen come from humanity in this pandemic just seems to be erased. We were so good a couple of months ago. And now it seems that the same people, the same country is unraveling. We're learning, I'm learning, that there have been systems and structures in place for years that have made it harder for people of certain races to advance. I'm seeing in conversations that long before we get into the room, there are deep internal biases in all of us. And those biases get in the way of frank conversations. It's almost as if each one in the conversation has to prove themselves all over again that I am not who you think I am. Like you, I've witnessed in the last few weeks the disintegration of our unity and I've noticed that Many who were loud have secrets. And I noticed that our leaders who were loud a few months ago are silent. They almost seem mystified that bread and circuses won't, or stimulus checks, won't keep the public happy. Like you, I hear voices of would-be prophets wanting to get retweeted, saying the same tired things that everyone else is saying. And their arguments are right, but their premise is flawed. Because they're using the same language that was handed to them by the people who raised them. So even when they speak religiously, they do it inside the confines of assumptions and language that was just given to them by the ones who stole them. It's like they've forgotten who they are. And that is the deeper grief that is inside of me. That in the body of Christ, we cannot talk about these things the way that we used to because we have lost or are losing at least a Christian imagination. The key pathology of our time, writes Walt Brueggemann, is the failure of the Christian imagination such that we are too numb, too satiated, too co-opted by the culture that raised us to think outside of their categories. I've heard 
pastors cite the Constitution like it was the fifth gospel. This is a flawed document. Only as good as the people interpreting it. But they have no other narrative. I hear pastors citing Thomas Jefferson like he was one of the 12. I hear calls for overturning systems and structures as if salvation is in systems and structures. I've talked to pastors who are trying to decide whether or not they should gather during this pandemic and resist the governor's um, quarantine. And in their argument, they've said, but Steve, we have to protect our rights. And I, I wanted to say we, we don't have rights. We have a calling. We have a mission. We have a Lord. We have a heritage. We have a faith. We do not appeal to laws and structures. We appeal to God. Our salvation is in God, but we seem to have lost the language. And so, I've been grieving uh, in these last couple of months the loss of our innocence and the loss of our imagination. I found myself, maybe like some of you, saying, is there anyone, God, who can say or write something we have not heard? Well, it isn't me. But that's when I found 1 Peter. In the span of seven verses, Peter alludes to the Old Testament nine times in an attempt to anchor the church's identity with the people of God from the past. It's almost as if Peter thinks, if I can get them to believe that they belong to this people in the past, it will rekindle their imagination. They'll rediscover their language so they can think in terms they couldn't think before. They can say things that no one else is saying. And so Peter says to this people that are living in Rome under an oppressive government, he says, you are a chosen race. You are a holy priesthood, a royal nation, a people belonging to God so that you should declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Therefore, you are aliens and strangers in this world because God has given us 
a new identity. He's given us language to speak of ourselves in ways that the culture does not even recognize. But if we will go back to that language, it will save us, not only as individuals, but as churches, as communities, as a nation. If we will anchor our identity in Jesus Christ and not in some lesser category, we will find real salvation. At the core of Peter's argument is the stone. The first time Peter used the metaphor of a living stone was in a sermon that he preached in Isaiah chapter 28. On the day Isaiah preached that sermon, Israel was about to go into exile. There was a storm that was coming on the horizon and everyone knew it and they were scared and they were fragile and they were bickering in the streets because the leaders of the nation were corrupt and the priests who were to hold them accountable were complicit in, in his sermon. Isaiah said that the leaders and the ones holding them accountable were befuddled with wine. They were staggering from one vision to the next. They were stumbling under decisions that they were making. And the nation was quickly imploding because it could not sustain the weight of its own corruption and greed and injustice. The physicians themselves were sick. And what did they do? They kept talking. They said, do and do, rule on rule, a little here, a little there, as if they had something to say. But Isaiah says in his sermon, who are they talking to? Are these children? And one reads that sermon feeling like it's pretty close to the times in which we live. And you can feel the darkness getting heavier around you. And that's when you hear the good news. God is on the move. He is about to do something from the outside that no one has done before and that no one inside could do to save themselves. Isaiah says God is building a house and he's laying the cornerstone upon which more stones will be built. And this house, says Isaiah, will be the thing that changes the nation. It will not come from its structures or from its laws. It will come from the house that God is building in Zion. He says, everyone who leans on that stone will never be dismayed. And I look up that word because I think it means disgraced or discouraged, but it's not what it means. 
It means hurried or rushed or pushed. And so the prophet seems to be saying that God is laying a stone in the midst of all the rubble in the face of the coming storm. And everyone who leans on that stone will not be pushed, rushed, or hurried. They will not grasp at every solution. They won't cling to every drunken prophet. They won't align themselves with every cause or organization that promises to keep the storm at bay. For the prophet says the storm is going to come and it's going to decimate the land. And when it's over, the only people standing will be the ones leaning on the stone. Society will be divided then as now. But the division will not be over race or ethnicity, over social class, over income. It will be based on whether or not you're leaning on that stone. This Stone, says the preacher, will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plumb line. In that day, says the preacher, there will be no justice until there is righteousness, just like there is no righteousness until there is justice. In that day, God will lay a stone and that stone will become a house and that house will be the salvation of his people. It's a totally different picture than anything I'd heard. It's bigger it's more aggressive. And this is where Peter picks up his argument. He looks at the people that are living in Rome in the midst of the rubble with the storm on the horizon. And he says to us, you are living stones that are built upon that cornerstone. You are being built into a spiritual house to offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. This is where your salvation will come from. It will not come from your laws, though you should change them. It won't come from your structures, Though overturn them if you can, it won't come from your constitution, your bill of rights, or anything else. It will come from the people of God who are built on that stone. Outside of that house. The house that God is building. Your nation cannot change. 
boy. Now do you know what Paul meant when he said of Jesus, that stone, that older brother who got out, he himself is our peace. He has made the two one. He has destroyed the barrier, the wall of hostility between them, creating in himself one new person, a third race that is neither one nor the other nor both together. It's a new race whose identity is in Jesus Christ. He is pulling together a house of people who see themselves as the people of God first. And then whatever else we are, after that, Church, until you know who you are, you will listen to every other voice. You will justify yourself, protect yourself. Promote yourself, indulge yourself, extend yourself, and worry yourself. Chasing every voice, every cause, every product that comes along. Promising every one of them to bring you satisfaction, but it never works, does it? And it will never work until you go back and build your identity on what Jesus Christ has done in your life. Says the prophet, you should stand on that stone because in the future, only the stone will stand. Winners and the losers are not who we think they are. They are determined by what they have done to Christ and by what Christ is doing to them. Now, it is my nature to give you questions at the end of these messages that I'm hoping uh, you will turn into discussion. As always, these questions can be improved upon in your context. And while the word today seems heavy to me and certainly directed at the times in which we live, I hope you can take these discussions broader, outside of the immediate current events, and talk about other things as well. As you talk,
Um, listen more than you talk. And wait. Don't hurry someone's answer. After I'm through with the questions, I thought it would be appropriate for me to go back to the Word of God and tell you who you are. The first question is, what does the Father say about you that is hardest for you to believe? And what about our culture makes that so hard? In other words, what do you keep hearing out there that is easy for you to fall into? And when you fall into that, everything just goes crazy in your head. So what are those things? And what does the Father say? Second, what about Isaiah's vision of a of a, of a cornerstone that is sure and solid and withstands the storm. And Peter's vision of a house, the church of God that is built on that stone, whose identity rises out of Jesus. And third, think about the house that God is building in your church. If you're part of college church, then I want you to think about us. But if you're part of another church, I'd like you to think about them. What do you want to be true of your church in the next five years? And more than that, what part do you think God might be uh, calling you to play? Some of you will just say, well, he wants me to pray, he wants me to support. Good. Be bolder than that. Be more specific than that. Maybe in your discussion you'll find ways that you can help with this vision of a spiritual house built on the cornerstone of Christ. Now, to the church of Jesus. Thrown by the culture into one of a hundred different categories. Steeped in the language of the people who stole you, taught you how to talk about yourself. To the church that feels trapped in a vision too small. Hear the word of the Lord. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Long ago, before He made the world, God loved you and chose you to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, he predestined you to be adopted as a son or a daughter in accordance with his own desires. For you were all baptized by one spirit into one body. Whether you are Jew or Gentile, slave or free, and you were all given one spirit to drink. So you are the body of Christ and each 
one of you is a part of that. So make every effort to keep the unity in the spirit, in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope. There is one Lord and one faith and one baptism and one God and Father who is over all, through all, and in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, Clothe yourselves with compassion, with kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Bear with one another and forgive one another just as God in Christ has forgiven you. And over all of these things, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity for you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole body is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. The Word of the Lord.